Welcome to the 404th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thank you for listening. Today I have a special guest, Christopher McDougall. You may know him if you're a runner from the first book that he wrote, Born to Run, in around 2009, I believe it was. And it was a landmark book in running, in ultra running, in shoe wear. It brought some controversy as far as should we wear padded shoes, big hills, little hills, minimalist shoes. He also brought to life why we're, as humans, were meant to run. You know, we're built for it, uh, we're upright. Um, the way our lungs are and our heart are, we're, we're actually built for long distance running. If you think we were probably more gatherers than hunters. And it didn't really suit him though, because he was a big guy and was always getting injured. And his sports medicine doctors kept telling him that if he run, he would, um, he would just be injured chronically. And so he went from injury to injury until he met up with a guy, Eric Orton, um, and some other fellows, Scott Jurek, Barefoot Ted, and he embedded himself with a tribe in Mexico deep in the Copper Canyon called the Terra Umera. And interesting thing about that uh, tribe is they were predominantly plant-based, so a lot of corn, rice, beans, uh, chia seeds. It was actually where chia seeds got their start, too, because they did a drink with lime juice and chia seeds. So he embedded himself... Um, he got running coaching from Eric Orton. He adopted a minimalist style footwear transition and he ultimately ran a 50 mile race in the Copper Canyon. And so that was a very interesting story. So he embedded himself and there was just so much uh, to learn from born to run. And it was so motivating for so many people about burrow racing and actually participated in a burrow race. And, um, you know, uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, burrows were used in the mining industry in the Rockies to help carry things out, um, as we'll talk about uh, in, in this interview, that, you know, donkeys are a stubborn, uh, a stubborn lot, but mainly they, they're very astute as far as they're not going to do something that they perceive as danger. And it requires a, a great deal of cooperation to be able to understand and communicate with a donkey to work effectively. And so he did a burrow race. And then fast forward, he and his family moved to a farm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and his daughter requested a donkey for her birthday. And he came upon this rescued donkey that had been left for dead in someone's barn, that his hoofs were long and it hadn't moved. And the next book, Running with Sherman, is about the transition of Sherman being almost a dead donkey with no purpose to running the Colorado Rocky Borough race with he and his wife and um, another friend. So I'm not going to give the story away, but it's a feel-good book about communication with animals, the beauty that we can attain running with other people. He explored the Amish community and their running. Um, being neighborly, learning from other people, communicating and cooperating with other people, sharing experiences with animals, and ultimately healing both humans and animals through their experience together. So it's a great read if you like running, if you like animals. So I hope you enjoy this interview. We kind of go all over the place. We do a little plant-based nutrition 
we do some running, we talk animals, and it was just a very, very pleasant conversation, and I'm honored to have Christopher McDougall as my guest today. Enjoy. My great pleasure to welcome Chris McDougall to the podcast today. Um, I've read Chris McDougall's Born to Run book. It's if you haven't read it, you should read number one. Number two will be coming out soon. But uh, it uh, introduced me to the world of ultra. It introduced me to the world of minimalist shoes and how, you know, to running style and form is, is great. And so that was a great book. It changed a lot of lives and you kind of was off the radar for, you were off the radar for a little bit. And on Twitter, I saw, uh, you made a comment how you, and you put actually a little TikTok video, I believe up where you were running books to your local library to library share, uh, booth. Um, in your in your neighborhood, and I thought that was so cool. You know, you talked about your shoes and running. It's like he's alive. You know, Chris McDougall's still running. It's so great, and uh, stalked you a little bit more. And then I came across the book that I really love, Running with Sherman. And Sherman is your rescued donkey, or he was your rescued donkey. He did not die. He is. He's still with us. But um, that was so cool. So I, I got that book and read it. And I had just I've just uh, did the Leadville. Uh, regular marathon for the first time this June. So it all kind of came together uh, for me very, uh, it, it was just great timing. So I like to talk to you about all this stuff, you know, um, again, running uh, born to run was a great story um, of, you know, and you can, you know, share a little bit about how you, you started out having some issues with running too, thought you were a big guy and probably couldn't, you know, get a marathon, let alone what's an ultra. And, uh, Somehow you were taught or, or kind of convinced that maybe you could run a little further. We've got so much to talk about. I've yeah. got a million questions for you. I, I would love to flip the tables because I am intensely curious about diabetes, about uh, good heart health. Um, I'm confronting it in my own life. I have an extremely diet conscious, athletic physically fit wife who is still struggling with prediabetes because of genetic predisposition and has an unbelievable iron willpower to do the right things when it comes to altering uh, her eating. But the information and misinformation that's swirling around out there is insanity. This is an educated person who is actually speaking with her doctor and getting crazy old advice. So uh, where to begin? I, I think... Here's what I think at the end of this conversation, we will end up circling back to. And ultimately it's this, if you change the behavior, you change the outcome. And I think that to me was the massive reveal before I began working on Born to Run. When I was convinced that running was not for, you know, guys who look like, you know, ambulatory refrigerators, you know, big dudes and doctors would, uh, treat my running injuries by saying you shouldn't be running, you know, running's bad for the body, especially bodies like yours. 
And then I met this guy named Eric Gordon, who was a running coach in, or I should say all around athletic coach in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he goes, that's ridiculous. You know, humans evolved as runners. We're great runners, all of us. And I tried to hold, do that whole thing like, well, you know, maybe some people, but not, nah, nah, nah. He's like, dude, absolutely everybody can run, which I doubted until I had exposure to the Tarumana in Mexico. And I said, well, all that, they're all running. They're 70 years old, running in sandals. And that's when it finally got through my head that we do not have to be dependent upon technology or foam or shoes. We have to be dependent on our behavior and that can liberate everything for us. How was that for an opening monologue? That was great. That was great. <laughs> and so the, and I say, Tara Umara, tell me how to say it again, really. Tara. Yeah, just don't pronounce the H. You say Tara Umara. Tara Umara. So they are in my circle of people with excellent heart health. Yeah. Um, there's a guy, uh, probably your long lost cousin named John McDougall. Uh -huh. um, and you know, John McDougall and the starch solution. But you know, if you look at all ancient societies or societies that have not evolved into Kentucky fried chicken, uh, you know, type of places that, you know, corn, beans, rice, um, or staples, you know, uh, the Okinawans, sweet potatoes, the Kenyans, Ugali, uh, rice, vegetables, Chinese rice, vegetables, you know, so when we got away from that, those diets, you know, um, um, we started to, to really have problems. And of course, you know, like you and I talked, or you just, you just alluded to that, um, everybody has a camp, right? Everybody has to call it something. It just can't be eating you know, just simple foods, we have to, we have to give it a name and it has to have um, a protein bar or a breakfast bar associated with it or a camp, you know, a Weight Watchers, a Jenny Craig or somebody name or a out, you know, some sort of ancestors to be any good. But the reality of it is if we just look at the simple things in life, like, you know, what you've done with the running and the, the running sandals, the flat shoes, um, and then you know, again, a donkey. And and one of the things that I like, and I know I'm skipping around a whole lot, but I got to get all this out of here because I know when you and I start to sort things out, it's going to just go crazy. But your your books are stories that you participated in, which I think is so, it makes it so unique. You know, you ran the race uh, in the Copper Canyon. You trained for that. You put yourself in the middle of your education and, and you did that. You put yourself out there. You ran the Leadville Mar the Leadville Borough race with the you know the donkey you became part of part of the story and you know you've shown that the joy of running transcends diverse ethnic backgrounds um, the animal human bond and what it can do to people with depression uh, ADHD spectrum disorders or just plain old you know um, learning about your neighbor. So, you know, I, I think this is, you know, your books to me all tie together. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk about, you know, how thing, people say, how do they progress? But to me, they, you know, your story is just like it should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I discovered that about myself um, with my books when I was contemplating a book recently, I knew that women were banned from participating in big wave surfing contests. So uh, there are big wave surfing contests in Hawaii, in Northern California at Mavericks and uh, in Portugal, and women were banned from the competitions. I mean, this is like now. And I heard about this and I'm like, how the hell is that possible? Like, how do you get away with that? 
And I knew that there were women who were training for these kinds, who were training for big waves. I go, how on earth in 2022 are you prohibiting a gender, an entire gender from an athletic contest? So I began to speak to some of the surfers and went out with them. And I was fascinated by this. And I thought, you know what? This would be a great book to write. To me, it's similar to Born to Run. You have an entire culture of athletes operating in the shadows, doing their thing with no hint of reward because they're not allowed to participate. And yet something draws it to them. And this is an extraordinarily complicated and sophisticated activity that they're doing because there is like zero margin for error. You got an 80 foot wave and you don't know what you're doing. You are shark food. And I was infatuated with this idea. I loved the idea of spending a year, two years researching the world of female big wave surfers and bringing that to the page. And after a couple of months of working on it, I just had this depressing feeling and I realized this is a great story. It's not my story. Uh, I, I can't get close enough. I'm not a big wave surfer. I'm not a woman. I, I, I cannot immerse myself closely enough in the experience to share it in a way where the emotions are vivid and transferable. Uh, this is not a book that I would want to read because to me, I, I think it would come across a little cold, it would come across a little forensic, you know, a little cadaverous. And so I had to walk away from it. And it's, it's still a great book for somebody to write, but I'm not, I'm not that person. And it, it just kind of clicked to me. I think there are two things that work there. I think number one is, um, it, probably, it probably all, honestly, you mentioned ADHD, it probably all circles back to like undiagnosed ADHD, or I would say unofficially diagnosed. Uh, this guy, do you know Dr. John Rady? He was a great, a terrific book called Spark. Yes, I do. I know the book well. Okay. Uh, I met him once at a conference and he kind of like patted me on the back, reassuring me and goes, you know, I'm sure school was torture for you with your, your ADHD. And I'm like, dude, I'm not ADHD. And he kind of like shakes his head and goes, yeah, you are. And <laughs> he was very kind about it, but like suddenly like my entire life like snapped into focus. And I think that was the thing about it. If I'm going to research a subject, I want to be able to be active. And secondly, I want to be able to be curious and want to stick with it for two years. And so that's why I need to get into something I can get my own feet dirty. And you did with uh, the Luna Sandals. <laughs> it did. Yes, I sure did. I find it so I, I find it interesting looking back because when I, I actually got a pair of the uh, five fingered uh, shoes after I read the book, that didn't last that long for me. I kept looking like my feet looked like frogs. I had a pair of the early uh, barefoot Ted sandals. I do wear Lunas now, but not really to run in, but I do do minimal shoes. I do Newtons or some flat ultra type of shoe. And I have since then. Um, and you know, I, I, I think that, you know, and I've watched the evolution of running and it makes so much sense. I've actually been to conferences hearing physics behind, you know, um, the thicker the shoe, the more, the harder you pound because you can't feel your feet. You're trying to get the proprioception between your head and your feet. Um, yet you do have to have somewhat of a, you have to, you know, we tell people just to go run. And, and of course I, you know, said you're too old not to run. But that being said, when older people take up running, and I'll say adults, you know, maybe after 30 or 40 type of thing, once you're not a child, a playful child anymore, we tend to lose our technique. Either we become stiff or we just don't have a great gait or nobody, if you weren't an athlete to start with, you know, and so you see people running all over themselves and they get injured like you did. And the first thing, you know, people put them in a big, you know, clunky shoe to maybe minimize the pain, so to speak, to keep them moving. And, um, 
you know, I, I think it's it's good that it's coming to light that there is a form, just like there is for golf and swimming. There is a form to running, and once you learn that, it's so much easier on the body. And um, you know, the the minimalist, the more minimal shoe makes it a little bit easier. Yet you see this, you know, we've the, the pendulum has swung back to these big cushion shoes now, and I see people in marathons and they're running on the inside of these big floppy shoes. And I just wonder, you know, I mean, the injuries that, you know, are still abounding because of some of the, you know, that we have a bad gates, but we just have bigger pillows to jump on. Yeah, they um, gave it bigger pillows. Well, here, here's the thing about it. I, I find this really infuriating because it's really kind of opened my eyes to how bogus, really, so much academic research is. Now, I've watched this debate rage for almost 15 years now. You know, should we have cushioning or not, or stability or not? And every time one party publishes an academically peer-reviewed paper, then the opposite comes out six months later, and then a third thing comes out six months later. Now, I read these things. I'm like, no wonder people are confused. You know, it's it's the academic researchers. They're always trying to find a niche and find a way and justify their you know their own time in the lab by putting this nonsense out. And to me, there is no question about it whatsoever. Anything that makes you rely less on technology is a good anything my cat is now biting my arm because <laughs> lunch time you have to wait sir uh and that's basically what this conversation is ultimately about you know you can say whatever you want about cushion shoes but ultimately the logical good is to not be, be dependent on something artificial if you can move away from that great where the conversation really makes its biggest fallacy is this idea that running is a certain thing, you know, that running means something like you're running a marathon or you're running fast, or when you run, you don't stop to walk. We have this, I wish you could hear this. I am literally under attack. I, 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 no, my cat's on the outside of the door or I would be under attack. <laughs> <laughs> Good um, anyway, that's the problem with it. You know, we, we've taken this thing. We have this, I don't know, man, I don't know if it's from the, uh, the Puritan work ethic we have, this notion like we can never admit we're having fun. Everything's got to be work, you know? So if you admit, hey, I'm just laying on the porch reading a book, you can't say that, you know? You got to be researching or studying. And it's the same with running. It can't just be shaking your butt for an hour. There has to be some kind of higher purpose. When people begin, particularly at an older age, to run, I think, again, they come in with, into this with this mentality of like, well, it's got to be, if I'm doing it right, it's got to hurt. You know, if I'm doing it right, it's got to be painful and distressing. And the exact opposite of true is true. Anything that is evolutionarily sanctioned will be pleasurable. It will be, it will feel good. We did not evolve to do things we hate. We evolved to do things that we enjoy. And running is extremely enjoyable if you don't subject yourself to this. My cat literally just pulled the plug out of the computer. This is what happens when you take in a rescue cat, Goober. Okay. Um, once we, if we accept the notion that running can be fun, and that's our starting point, then anything that's not fun, don't do that thing. Uh, my friend Barefoot Ted, whom you remember from Born to Run, he made this point to me, and, and I make fun of Ted a lot because he's, he's dead. But he'll say these things and I'll be like rolling my eyes and put my finger in my mouth like, oh, God, Ted, don't make me gag. And then six months later, I'm like pretending I made it up myself. But here's the, the perfect example. So Ted was running the Leadville Trail 100. And around 
Two o'clock in the morning, I was supposed to meet him at the uh, 88 mile um, aid station. I was gonna run him in for the last 12 or 13 miles. And this aid station, this thing looks like an ER. It looks like a trauma ward. People are coming in there, they're dropping out of their race, they're flopping on cots, everyone's in distress. It's two in the morning. Even the people who haven't been running aren't feeling good. Ted throws open the flaps of the tent, comes walking in like it's a red carpet parade. And he's walking in and he's just been running since four o'clock the previous morning, almost 24 hours in a pair of Luna sandals at 12,000 feet in the dark in the Rocky Mountains. He's walking through the door and it takes him 10 minutes to get to me because he's chatting with everybody. He's high five and he's grabbing snacks. And I'm staring at this guy like, what are you on, dude? What is in your blood? So we got the door and we start running toward the finish line. It's 12 miles and we're going through the darkness and we catch up with a guy and pass him. And Ted slaps him on the back and he's like, Janie, I've taken this race and I've turned it into a chat fest. And this guy goes, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and on we go, we get to the finish line and Ted finished this race in an extraordinary time. I think it was like 25 hours. And I said, man, what is your training like, man? And he goes, Migoso, I have a new technique. I am no longer interested in the limits of what's painful. I am only interested in the limits of what's pleasurable. And of course, everyone around him is just wants to put a bolt in his brain. But it worked. And Ted's idea is if you only exercise to the point where it starts to become unpleasant and you stop, you are doubly motivated to return the next day. You know, you have unfinished business. It's, it's self-rewarding. So that's basically what it comes down to. This idea that you need shoes and you have to train for a marathon. You got to be fast. Chuck it all and just focus on fun. Yep. I, you know, um, I pretty much agree, you know, the, the, the fun part anyway. I think, you know, um, having, a, having some sort of goal or carrot uh, keeps people going out the door. I know, you know, I always sign up for another, you know, if you have a race on the horizon, um, you know, it kind of keeps you honest as far as letting it go, but you're right. If it's not fun, you're not going to do it. And we try to get people to do movement that they enjoy. You know, um, a lot of our, you know, people that listen to this podcast and members are, you know, they're pushing 60, 70 title nine was not around. A lot of women, especially did not get to do sports, especially weightlifting and things growing up. So a lot of things are new to people. So it's, you know, it's, again, it's about finding what you love and what you'll do again and again and again. And there's no limit on what you can do. Um, some of us are crazy enough. Maybe I could go a little bit further or one more race or a little bit faster. But yes, it's for the pure love of it. I, um, you know, well, running with Sherman in the in the donkey, that's a special way to get somebody to run. I, my German shepherds, they, they like to run to start with, but that that gets me out of the, in, out of the door in the morning. You know, I know that you know, a one-year-old German shepherd that doesn't get exercise is, is going to be danger to the house and any other, you know, thing around <laughs> if you don't uh, exercise them. So, I mean, it's, it's motivating, but it's also so peaceful when I'm out running with it, you know, and I watch their gait, you know, if you want to see a perfect gait, just watch an animal um, and how fluid and, and how much fun that they have. And, you know, it, again, it gets me out the door um, every morning. So, you're, you you lived in the city and at some point you decided, you know, you, you want to get out, get away from things and experience. You, you, if I remember right, you, uh, you and your wife kind of experienced the country and said, how do we get back to that 
you know, again, more simplistic living. And you took it probably one step step above simplistic living. You really, you really gave yourself a a challenge and ended up in Amish country in Pennsylvania. Yeah, we were living in Philly. My wife is from Hawaii and she'd only planned to be in Philadelphia for nine months. Uh, she was a reporter for the Associated Press as I had been. And they, they like to rotate the retor- uh, reporters from the sort of far-flung bureaus more closer to base around New York, Philly. So she thought she'd be in and out in nine months. And then, you know, lo and behold, she meets me and everything just spiraled down after that. Uh, but we were living together and raising our first daughter in downtown Philly. And uh, we had the thought of like, hey, why, why are we here? We could be anywhere. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom at that point. I was working as a freelance writer. I could be anywhere. So we just kind of widened our orbit further and further, just kind of looking around, like, what can we find? And then we find the first affordable house we came across was a log cabin in the heart of Amish country. It's so remote. That's the reason why it was uh, so cheap, because if you weren't, it was too small for Amish farmers and yet too far away for anybody else. So we bought it, thought, let's try this experiment. And 20 years later, we are still there (laughs) loving it. there are a lot of reasons I think we adapted really well to it. Uh, number one, um, that's kind of my wife's MO. She just adapts. She finds the way to find, barefoot Ted in that way, finds a way to find the joy in it and then figures it out. Uh, but the second thing is we really took to a very modified Amish lifestyle, which is raise as much of your own food as you can, uh, trade for the rest, uh, surround yourself with animals and learn how to take care of them. And it really was that life-changing experience, that connection with nonverbal life forms that rely on you is really um, fulfilling in a way where if you get it and you realize this creature is depending on you, there's not a day off, there's no, I'm I'm just not gonna do it, you can't shrug it off. And uh, it it creates that kind of um, moral discipline but also a physical discipline, you know, Hey, it's middle winter. There's five feet of snow on the ground overnight. The uh, pump's frozen. You got to grab snowshoes and two five gallon buckets and huck it down to the Creek or else they're not going to have any water to drink, to drink. And so you had a, you had some, it was, it's a pretty funny story, you know, um, that, you know, you, you, you start out with some runaway goats basically that you'd uh, bring them in and they, they'd run out and, um, you know, it was not all you know, goat goat life. It was an education in in goat behavior at first, but then you um, said, "Yeah, we'll we'll take this poor rescue donkey." Your daughter decided it was your daughter, right? Kind of wanted a donkey, and um, here's a here's a cheap donkey, you know, on donkey on, on sale, and <laughs> it was the uh, rescue, you know, rescue exponentially donkey that you you ended up with. It wasn't uh, your thoroughbred donkey, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. There's a lesson to the wise. Uh, You get what you pay for with donkeys. (laughs) But, you know, the situation was, I think, kind of the um, dynamic I'd set myself up for with. As a freelance writer, you're always scrambling. You're always pitching. You're always scrambling. And that was my mindset. It was like, see an opportunity, just go. You know, fake it till you make it, jump in, promise the world, and then hope you can figure out how to make it into a story later on. And after about, at that point, we'd been on the farm for about 16, 17 years, raising sheep and goats and chickens and ducks and tons of barn cats. And I was kind of flexing a little bit, feeling like I had this kind of figured out. And then my daughters, who had grown up and knew another life than living on the farm, 
uh, my youngest had seen a woman riding a donkey, a pack burrow in the woods. So you never see this in Pennsylvania Dutch country. She saw this woman like clambering up a rocky trail on the back of a donkey being nine years old. That just seemed like perfect. You know, uh, a donkey is just like a kid sized horse. So for her birthday, I say, hey, for your 10th birthday, you know, what do you want, Soph? And she goes, I, I want a donkey. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, let's, let's see if we can make this work. So we asked around and a friend of ours who was in the Mennonite uh, community said, actually, we got someone in our church that has a donkey and we need to get it away from him. And the reason why was because this guy was an animal hoarder and was keeping these animals in extreme, uh, extremely terrible situation. Turned out to be the worst possible donkey that you can acquire for an expected 10 year old's birthday because this <laughs> is the words of death. Uh, and we turned it around. So we learned a lesson. Lesson number one is seek out people who know, give them the honor of letting them help you. And that's something I think we don't do enough in our lives. Um, allow people to help you. It's extremely rewarding for, for them as well. So we asked around our friends and they were happy to step in and help. Uh, and the second thing was we got to get past our own like homo sapiens master of the universe mentality that we know it all, that we've like outsmarted mother nature and put ourselves into the brains of other creatures. Try to understand them as opposed to making them conform to what we want. You know, you mentioned your one-year-old German shepherd. There's lots of things you can do with a dog. Uh, it doesn't mean it's what the dog wants to do. And if you don't at least try to understand, then life's going to be miserable for the both of you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've, the things that I've learned with, you know, the dogs are, you know, humility. Um, a, a lot of our German shepherds have been rescues. And they're so grateful. Uh, they're they're so kind. No matter you know what their day was, they're you know, and they teach such humility um, and understanding that it's you know it's hard not to be softened by them. And actually, uh, my dog goes to work with me. So most of the patients that come in, you know, they get to talk to the the dog and. Sometimes she comes in the room with us if the patient is somewhat, you know, nervous or, you know, upset and, um, but she's always there and everybody, you know, we've always actually, I've always had a dog in the office and a lot of times, you know, people, they would rather see the dog than, than me. Um, but it's, you know, but it breaks down so many barriers, um, to, to just have that, you know, um, a little bit of peace when you first walk in a doctor's office. Well, yeah, in, in running with Sherman, I start to explore that. And why is it we feel this connection with dogs and cats? And if you look back to prehistory, you can envision a scenario that makes a lot of sense. When we first started to partner with wild dogs, wolves and other wild dogs, and with wild cats, their senses are so much more acute than ours. So if you are in a shelter at night and a wild cat is lying nasty that you've domesticated and that cat is purring and breathing lightly. It tells you that that cat's night vision and extraordinary hearing has surveyed the surrounding environment and is reassured that there's no danger out there. I, I think that's one of the reasons why we feel the sense of security from animals because we relied on them, you know, before we had any security, before we had lights in the nights when we were living in darkness surrounded by threats our partnership with these animals and their responses to the environment would impart a sense of security to us. And we grew up side by side with them for tens of thousands of years. 
So I think there, there is that ancestral link that we are foolish to, to separate from. So the first borough race happened several years before you met Sherman, right? Did you actually do, you did, you did a borough race with a borrowed donkey? Is that, is that how that went in Leadville? Oh, I like that. It's a borrowed borough. It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. So, you know, the history of borough racing is also kind of sort of timeless. The idea is that prospectors in the Rockies back in the 1800s, when they would strike gold, they would load their uh, gear on the back of a burrow and then run to the nearest town. And the reason why prospectors use burrows is because they um, have a different reaction to the fight or flight mode when, uh, you know, fight, flight or freeze. So a horse, you can scare it into doing what you want. You know, you smack a horse, it will go, even if, if it doesn't have confidence. A donkey, if it is not certain that the path ahead is safe, you can't make it move. And so for prospectors, that was actually a really good trait. Don donkeys could prevent them from getting themselves into trouble. So prospectors used uh, burrows in the Rockies for a long time. And then when mining went underground, the donkeys were still extraordinarily useful because they are compact of stature uh, and extremely strong for their size. So now you have donkeys that are being used underground in the mines. And on the weekends, the, the, the miners would take these donkeys and run around, play with them. They became attached to them. And they started to run these races. So they would run, for instance, from Leadville, Colorado, up and over Mosquito Pass to Fairplay, almost 30 miles. And these guys would start in one bar and finish in another bar, you know, and then, then wagon the donkeys home. Uh, this uh, tradition continues. So the first official prize money borough races started in the 1950s. You know what's really cool about this? So 1950s, 60s, 70s, women, are running and winning 29 mile races at 12,000 feet up and down a mountain, running, running fast with a 700 pound animal that could kick their heads off and having no problem. Meanwhile, in Boston, doctors in a rage, like, women cannot run 26 miles. You know, the, the human, the female constitution, the reproductive system is not designed for this kind of stress. And the women in Colorado are like, what is your problem, you know? I just love the fact that there was this debate raging when the evidence to the contrary had been around for 30 years. So that was the history of borough racing. I, again, being a scrambling freelancer, I mentioned to you back in, uh, I can't remember what year it was, it might have been around 2004 or so, I was in uh, Leadville and I heard about these borough races and I decided to do a magazine article and, and try it out. And, uh, you know, in more ways than one, it got my ass handed to me. I borrowed a donkey. I didn't know what I was doing. It was a miserable day. I walked away thinking I was a stupid thing that I'll never do again. But then years later, I got this rescue donkey. And the friends who were helping me are telling me, if this creature does not start to move, it's dead. You've got to get it moving. And one thing I know about myself is that if there isn't a certain amount of self-interest, at some point I'm gonna quit. So you can, I, I may be dedicated to helping this donkey, but after a couple of weeks, if I get bored, I'm just gonna stop. So I needed to combine the donkey's need with my own personal interest. And I came up with this idea of like, why am I trying to make it my running partner? And as you mentioned before, it always, it's always nice to have a, a come to justice moment out there on the calendar. And I thought if I'm gonna follow through on this thing, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a, you know, a call to the carpet ahead. So I thought, okay, there's a burrow race in a year. Let's see if I can take this uh, sick donkey and train it 
to the point where he can compete with me in Colorado in the world championship pack barrel race. So, and we'll jump ahead. I'm jumping a little bit, but I'm just so curious. I have to ask it now. It started in fair play over Mosquitoes. So you ended up in Leadville was the way that it was where the race ends. It originally was that way. It would transfer back and forth. So one year would be Leadville to fair play, next year fair play to Leadville. But what the two cities realized is all the money was being spent at the finish line, not the starting. <laughs> the <bar. laughs> and they, they didn't want to trade anymore. So then they had split up and created uh, their own races. So uh-huh. Fair Play and Leadville each have their own race. And it's a loop race that begins and ends in their own cities. I got it. I got it. Because, uh, you know, when we, when people, you know, we live down here in Florida and, um, we knew that we were going to go to elevation and that was going to certainly take some of our speed, but we just wanted to see the, we wanted to be in Colorado. We wanted to see the mountains. We wanted to just have fun. That's, that's all we were after is to go and have fun and finish the race. But, you know, on the backhand was like, well, you know, how bad could it be? Cause it's only 13 and a half out, you know, up to mosquito pass and you turn around and you come down a hill. So, I mean, if you can make it to the top, you should be able just to turn around and come back down. How bad, you know, again, how bad could it be? <laughs> But what, you know, what we didn't realize is, you know, when we got there the day, we got there the day before the race. So no acclimatis, you know, we didn't acclimatize at all. And, you know, just running up the street, you know, heart rates went up. But so we knew that it's going to be slower than we thought slower. So it was slower again, you know, another another gear of slower that we were going to go. But, you know, when we got up there, of course, the relentless climb to Mosquito Pass and on the little the rocks that, you know, nothing. I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, thank God you were walk you know running with the donkey and not having i would be scared to death to be on top of anything coming down that you know those those slopes but certainly we didn't pick up any speed on the way down and if anything it got slower yeah and, yeah you know I, I think i heard you talking about you know people you know how you you know the running side and i, I was that person it's like oh this is you know this is a compound fracture of something waiting to happen you know so, so i thought that that was so cool you know that you're gonna okay so you're gonna take this donkey to run this this race and you're in lancaster and there's some hills but it's not like you're at elevation um you, you know and, and you had to get this donkey to actually step on the road <laughs> there was there was a lot there are a lot of chainsaws being juggled uh the first challenge as you said was we knew we wanted to do a race I don't know if the donkey knew that it wanted to do a race. I don't think Sherman even knew what a race was. So it was, that's the first, that's the first. And I think to me, the coolest challenge of all is getting the animal to sign on with the program. You know, so you confront this in the morning. Um, I was actually just in uh, Colorado recently with my friend and co-author, Eric Gordon. We were visiting his sister who has this uh, black lab and, uh, she came back from a walk, was really frustrated because the dog was constantly stopping to sniff, stop to sniff, walking in circles, and it wasn't progressing. And so she wanted to work out because she had to go to work. She wanted to get a nice 45 minute sweat in and the dog wanted to just, you know, sniff bushes for an hour. And um, what I had learned from the donkeys, I thought, let me try it. So I took the dog out for a walk and the dog is a magnificent walker. Matter of fact, I, I was barely able to maintain a walk. I had to break into a trot. This dog was ready to go. But the trick is letting the animal know that it's time for a job. Like this is the work time. And you know who's extraordinarily good about this is uh, Cesar Milan. Have you ever watched his program? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So he, he's come under fire and I, I really feel it's unjustifiable because, you know, he has based some of his talking points around the idea that uh, dogs evolve from wolves and wolves have a pack and the pack has a leader. But in my own, in my own experience, I, I really found this to be true. 
if you let the animal realize, hey, I'm the one who's taking point here, all your responsibility is to get into lockstep and follow, they really respond to that. So that, that was our first um, move with the donkeys. However, the way we were able to do it with the donkeys was by getting more donkeys, uh, which became like my, <laughs> but it became my motto is if you have a problem with a donkey, just keep throwing more donkeys at the get problem. So we ended up getting a second donkey, then a third, and then a second runner and a third. And then it was me and my wife and our friend Zeke. But once Sherman was surrounded by a pack, the socialization skills uh, were unbelievable. As soon as he had the reassurance of two more donkeys and two more runners, and there were six of us out there, it just clicked. I, I thought it was interesting that they all had their uh, their all fortes. So um, Sherman, you know, he in Matilda, you know, one and then Flower was the other donkey that you know. So Flower was go get it, but the other two, they, they everybody had their points. So you use their personalities when you needed them most. Uh, you know, sometimes somebody had to be the lead. Somebody, you know, the way you positioned them. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. Uh, and if we want to relate this back to human running. It's regrettable that so many of us look at running as a solitary experience. Uh, you know, it's funny because actually I'm, I'm gonna share this with you because I just got this yesterday in the mail. We just got our first galley copy oh, of, nice. of Born to Run 2. And one of the chapters in there is called Family. So we have this idea that we, what we call the free seven, mm -hmm. that there are seven sources of free energy that you can use to power your running. You know, it's food, form, fitness, footwear, family fun, um, probably missing the, the seventh um, F. But if you put the word fun or family into a training guide, people automatically kind of discount. It's like, okay, well, this isn't serious. But it really is. You know, humans evolve just like donkeys to run in packs. You know, prehistorically, you would never go into the wilderness by yourself. Okay. That, that, that is a recipe for disappearance. You go up by yourself, you ain't coming back. So when we went on persistence hunts, we went with a group, men and women alike. And that is a source, a source of free energy that you can tap into. Likewise, it's fun. You had mentioned uh, my wife's genius idea of crafting her long run around visiting those little free libraries in people's front yards. To me, there's, there's so much smartness going on at the same time. So first of all, you got to figure out where they are. So it makes you acute to your neighborhood. You're paying attention. So she'd do her shorter runs and she would notice, oh, there's one here. Oh, there's one there. And she would create a mental map of where these libraries are. Uh, the second thing is you're putting a backpack on your back. And so you got to figure out how you're going to offload these things. Um, and then lastly, there's a built-in rest. You know, we had this idea that you run yourself into aerobic distress and keep going. Well, or you can take a beat you know, rest and keep going. You will go twice as far if you rest in the middle. So all this stuff, so my, that's what my wife would do. And then I would go along with her. I'm like, man, this is actually fun. Plus there's the anticipation of reward. You don't know what's in that next free library. It could be something really cool. So you load up a backpack with books you don't want. You run to the first one, you offload things. Maybe you pick one up uh, and then just do this circuit. And you come back with an empty backpack, smile on your face, the longest run of the week. It's just fun disguises work. I can't, I'm going to mess up her name, uh, Sister Madonna, uh, I can't remember her last name, but she was a nun that uh, had a little too much energy, and uh, she started running, but her training was all about 
things she did. She ran to the store, she ran here, she did, you know, she biked here, whatever type of thing. And she she was still an Ironman's well into her 80s. I actually met her in, here in Florida. But again, she made it fun. She made it part. It wasn't just going out and training. It was, you know, part of, part of life. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what I like about ultras. We started with the marathons. I started, I guess, like most people or a lot of people, you know, want to run a run with the herd. So the bigger, the better, you know, the, the giant 20, 40,000 marathoners. And then we did, um, I'm from originally West Virginia, and there's actually a little marathon in Southern West Virginia called the Hatfield and McCoy. I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with that for sure. Yeah. It's so fun. So it's in the middle of nowhere in the, you know, Hatfield McCoy um, yeah. in the area. And, you know, it's about 200 people take off from a, a grocery store, you know, and it was so much fun. You know, you're running the back and forth between West Virginia and Kentucky, the, the route of the feud, basically. And it's like, oh man, these little things are, you know, so much fun. And then of course we, you know, started in some of the ultras and, you know, like, again, it becomes such more, you get to know people and you talk and everybody encourages everybody and you get to an aid station. It's like a picnic, like where you been, you know, and you, and you have a good time. And like you say, you stop and you, you, you catch your breath and you go on. There's not this, you know, um, need to, you know, like you say, push, push lights out into the end. And it's a whole different experience. And, um, you know, we, we really, 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 really enjoy it. Yeah, that's the thing about it. I, I read a, a quote one time. Someone said, like, the best starting line is the one you draw in the dirt with the toe of your shoe. <laughs> you know, it's kid style. Uh, so, again, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, the commercialization of everything, basically everything that is crucial to life, at some point, someone's trying to sweat a few dollars out of you. So education, healthcare, and now exercise. Exercise has become all about one of two things, watching other people do it on television or charging you a buttload of money for you to participate. That's the, Amish. Okay. the Amish runs. That, that was another great part of the book, you know, where they do these, you know, you would never guess that, uh, you know, they were having their night runs. What was a moon? Uh, uh, yeah, Velospringa is Vela the group, which basically just means, hey, let's run. Let's run. So the Velospringa crew, yeah, it's really cool. These are these are hard-working farmers, and and uh, but really, it came out of the group of uh, what's known as Rumspringa. So the, the, you hear the, the word Springa, which means run, and so Rumspringa means run wild. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this from Amish culture. Uh, the Amish believe in adult baptism, not infant baptism, and so uh, teenagers are given the voluntary choice: go off, sow your wild oats, do whatever you want for a couple of years. And when you join the church, you're making a conscious, informed decision. And so Rumspringa is when Amish teenagers can just buy a truck, go live in the city, smoke weed, do whatever you want. And at the end of that period, whenever it comes, year, two years, or never, you can make a decision that you're going to join the church. Uh, so it was out of that group. There's a youth group who was on Rumspringa, and somehow they came up with the idea, hey, it'd be really fun to like run marathons. So they began training and running together. And uh, they formed the group Velospringa, which means let's all run together. And they started to, to do this tradition of the full moon, the monthly full moon run. I, I love it. To me, it's, there's nothing better. Nothing better than gathering in someone's front yard in the middle of nowhere. There's a place in Lancaster called the Valley of No Wires, no electricity, no phones, and running through absolutely silent darkness. Wow. Often not even with your headlamps on because you know, your eyes will adjust to the dusk if you're not you know, light blinded 
And as the moon comes up, you just start to run through this milky glow and do a five or 10 mile run. You finish up chocolate milk, uh, freshly made waffles, ice cream. It, it's delightful and it's not competitive. These guys run hard, men and women, they, they run hard. I had finished a five miler and had the 10 milers like hot on my heels. So these, <laughs> these Amish can, can motor, but it's not competitive. It is, um, it, it is like delating. It's delating the freedom of movement. And uh, that was part of the donkey training. They, uh, you, you ran the, the donkeys in the, in the, the night runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we did. I hosted one of the full moon runs. My Amish buddies came down and it was a revelation. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing too. It, for security reasons, it's a hard thing to recommend. But if people can go out in the evening uh, as it is approaching dark or after dark to run or even just to walk, it is a very settling experience. And you mark the course with flour. I thought that was fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just put some white out and then first rain and it's gone. There you go. That was very, very good. Um, so the actual, and, and you know, to, to uh, you know, people obviously need to, to read the book, um, but you, you took on a friend, uh, a neighbor's uh, son, Zeke. And, um, you know, he had a bond with the donkeys. You, you bonded with several families and it became more, you know, the, the bonds, um, the donkeys helped heal people, you know, you helped heal Sherman, but the donkeys ended up healing, um, a lot of people around them. It, it's a thing that I still struggle to fully understand because I, I think what was going on is that there is a transference that happens when you realize you're in a situation that is out of your control and the only way to move forward is to truly empathize with the people around you. And this happened for me acutely when we were training because we'd be out in the woods and I'm with my wife who is not a really a runner by training. I'm with a friend's son who was in his early 20s and had just barely survived a really difficult mental health episode. And we have donkeys that I'm responsible for. And me trying to be the drill sergeant was not gonna help anything. The only way to make as sure as possible that everyone would be okay is to really pay attention. How is Zeke doing? There's no cell phone service out there in the woods, you know, and no one could find us even if they did. I had to keep an eye on Zeke. How is he doing? I want to make sure my wife was not putting herself in danger for us. And then the donkeys, these are big, very strong animals that if you do not understand them, uh, they can make life very difficult uh, for you. Uh, they can kick you in the face. They can take off. They can drag you over rocks. And, and so there's something about that that at first was very intimidating and daunting, but then became really gratifying because there's something about when you look at another person and you shut your own stupid greedy brain off for a heartbeat and try to understand what they want and need and boy I, I, you can take a step back now and say boy is that not the state of america today right if we could just figure out what the heck is going on uh with the people we don't agree with maybe you know maybe we can heal some wounds yeah, I think, you know, it, it comes back to it. I, I, you know, when it all comes down to it, we probably all have more 
in common than we realize, but sometimes the fear of our differences makes us stay away. You know, I mean, it was, you know, you were thrown into a situation. And I think that's, it's how it kind of works a lot of times when people are thrown into a situation, it works out better than if they have the choice to form their own situation. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the truth? Yeah. That's why it's so bonding too. You know, you, the people you've come out of the heavy seas with are your friends for life. You know, same thing. I had, you know, some friends that we've run marathons and we train together too. And you talk, you know, if you're spending three or four hours with somebody, you talk about a lot of things. And, you know, that's one way to get to know somebody uh, is uh, train, train, train with them. So, you know, if I can, if I can address that point for a second. So um, Arthur Lydiard, who mm -hmm. really kind of launched the whole phenomenon of recreational running with his Auckland Sunday runners group. So these were cardiac patients. These were people who had survived an acute cardiac episode. And doctors said, well, you better rest. You better rest. And Lydia's like, who was not a doctor? thought, actually, I thought maybe they should have to yeah, get there and move a little bit. But he had a fundamental rule, which was conversational pace. Mm -hmm. Do not run any faster than the pace at which you can maintain a conversation. And again, it's kind of genius. Like there, there is your anaerobic threshold right there. If yes. you can't talk, you're breathing too hard. If you can, you're in a safe zone. And but I think there's a psychological truth about there too. Is it's where physiology and evolution all come together, which is that we are social creatures. That's what humans are. Like that is the reason why we have succeeded um, as we have because we are social. We, we exchange ideas all the time. It's unnatural unnatural for us to not communicate. And so if you can take the run and make it a conversational collaborative exercise, like to me, like that's the model. And I love the fact that Lydiard started running that way. And just now we're starting to realize it's time to get back to it. And so your new book, uh, which is coming out in December. Yeah. Uh, and you can pre-order uh, through your website and, and I'll make some, you give me some show link where I should you know, direct people to obviously. Um, your ticket, you kind of, you know, you, you said, I, I, you know, again, I heard you say, you know, I stalked you just a little and, um, you know, the people ask you, you know, you're the guru now you broke board. It's like, you figured out that, you know, we were meant to run and we've survived all this time. And now how do we do it? And you decided, well, let me, let me, let me get Eric and, uh, let's, let's take it one step further and, and go into this and, and give people some direction. The thing about it was. When I first started working with Eric back in 2004, I guess it was, I just come back from the Copper Canyon. I'd seen the Tarumata and I think, huh, this is a group with like no crime, no heart disease, uh, minimal forms of uh, displays of cancer, uh, no violence, no domestic abuse, like er everything we're wrestling with in the modern world. Like this group figured it out 400 years ago. And the other thing was that they were extraordinarily adept athletes. So I'm like, what is going on with these people? And I was exploring that idea with Eric Gordon, a coach I had been assigned to write about for Men's Journal Magazine. And that's when he, he, he crafted this idea, put it in my head, is like, we were born to do this. It's natural. I was a doubter. I just did not think that this guy from Jackson Hole knew more than all the sports uh, exercise doctors I'd seen who told me not to do it. There's no way this guy can be right. And it's taken me until now, it's been 15 years later, where it just dawned on me like, Oh, yeah, it happened. It's been 15 years. For a long stretch of time, even though I would be working with Eric sporadically, you know, he trained me for the Copper Canyon race. He uh, stepped up once again when we were training for running with Sherman. Whenever I had a challenge, I would call Eric. He'd tell me what to do, and it would work. 
but it didn't get through my head that this was a pattern. It was kind of more like you're in the plane and, and the pilot just had a heart attack. Like, okay, I'm the guy from the back of the plane. I landed the plane. I'm not a pilot. I'm just a dude who happened to bring the plane in for a landing. And then it dawned on me after 15 years, I was like, man, we brought this plane in a lot of times without crashing. Um, but I still did not have the expertise. And that's why I thought it's time to reach out to Eric and let the world know what he has taught me, plus all the things that I've learned along the way from having worked with him. Very cool. Yeah, I, I very much look forward to, to to reading that book. So it'll be another, uh, you know, it, you always learn something, you know, I mean, you always learn something. And I, I think, you know, every time I run, uh, I, I grew up as a golfer. Uh, which has no, you know, not much running involved in, in golf. And I guess unless you play, the, there's a one form that you can do. We didn't do that kind. Uh, I did carry my clubs and walk. So I had a little bit of walking, but um, running is a lot like golf and swimming. There is a form to it. And, you know, I always tell people, I'm always learning. I'm, I've been running, uh, my first marathon was uh, 1999. And I, you know, I continue to evolve and I continue to learn things about my own gait and I watch other people and you, and you, and you, you see, and you adapt. And, um, you know, it's, it's something you can learn all the time. You can hone that skill. And, and I, and I think that's also a great thing is that you can start where you are and you can always make it just a, a little bit better. And, um, if you can get some cues here and there from somebody that, you know, as a, can fix the problem easier, it makes it a little quicker. <laughs> and, and here's the other thing too, is beyond that, it, it becomes more enjoyable. You know what it's like? I mean, when we talk about activities that have form, like name the activity that doesn't have a form. Like what's the one activity on earth that you just do it however the hell you want? Nothing. Everything you do, swimming, golf, using chopsticks, there is always a physically better way to perform it. And once you learn that skill, it's gratifying unto itself. But also form is all about efficiency. You know, the reason why swimmers swim a certain way it's not because they look pretty. No, that's the most efficient way to cut through the water. If you do a martial art, it's not just because you look good jumping through the air. That's the most effective way to perform that exercise. And it's the same thing with running. If you learn good form, it doesn't mean you're like a fancy pants, you know, aspiring Olympian. It means now you have increased efficiency. Your running is easier and feels better. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, 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 certainly, it certainly does help to make it, to, to go through uh, cover some miles a little bit easier and not in pain. That, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. And I was, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm good at is assessing people's injuries because I've had so many of them, you know? <laughs> and yeah. So when people come in, it's like, oh yeah, 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 I've done this, you know, this is, you know, we're, you know, this is, and uh, it, it's kind of funny. And that's my nurse has always said, yeah, she'll, she'll look at it. She's probably done it before, you know? <laughs> right, you know so, right. So I've learned the hard way on a lot of things. I, I read a lot, but I've, but I probably learned more of the stuff the, the hard way. Yeah. Um, nutrition. You asked me first. And so now I'll answer your question. Um, when I started, I, I've um, been doing this for about 30 years. And in medical school, I went to West Virginia University, you know, and it's, uh, you know, one of the highest incidents of heart disease and obesity in the country. Uh, most of my patients were 50 to 60 that had significant heart disease. I didn't see 80 year olds. They, they didn't live that long. Um, and, but, you know, I became very, and then I was, I did my fellowship at a, um, a transplant center at university of Pittsburgh. And so I saw transplant, I even saw Amish people that needed heart transplants, uh, by the way, cause some of them do smoke. Um, and 
but I became very efficient. And I thought if I titrated the medicines, I have a ter terrible family history. And so my whole practice, like most people, was how do I titrate medicines so tight that people do better? And so I became very adept at adjusting medications. Uh, you know, we talk, I, you know, I started running and I put my running posters up in the office trying to encourage people to run, but nobody really ever did. Um, it was just, you know, so you ran a marathon. Did you lose? You know, why did you, you know, why do you run if you're not, if you're going to lose every time? And, you know, maybe you should practice. Those, those are the kind of things. Those are my comments or I'm too, my knees are bad. I played high school football, but anyway, nobody ran and nobody got better. And I never took anybody off of medications. And then I stumbled upon, um, you know, um, John Robbins diet for new America um, you, you know, and they started talking about, you know, factory farming and the environmental aspects of, of, you know, eating animals and, but they started talking about the health aspects of, you know, what eating these animals did in the dairy over time. And it's like, my God, I didn't know that, you know, nutrition really mattered. You know, I thought if you just, you know, don't eat too much, you get full, you like it, it should be all right. And what happens to you just, you know, things just happen. You have, you have bad genes, so to speak. Right. Um, and then, you know, then what, and then it evolved and this guy, you know, uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, you know, I kind of ran into him and, and he's like, you know, takes these people that were told, go home and get your affairs in order and put them on a plant-based diet and take the oil out of their diet. And all of a sudden they're alive and they're doing what they want to do. So I decided to, on a whim to start doing a nutrition class in the office. And so we basically took 16, got 16 chairs at a garage sale, put them in my back room where my stress lab was. And, uh, when, and we, use a whiteboard and start teaching people how to, you know, make simple meals that were plant-based. And the first, you know, first six weeks, all of a sudden people's blood pressure started going down, their diabetes, their glucose got better, their diabetic neuropathy started getting better, their cholesterol started getting better. It's like, oh my God, this works. And the more I read, the more I was hooked. And in diabetes, you know, I was always taught in med what most were taught in medical school that don't eat too many carbs, right? Every year, all you hear is don't carbs this, carbs that, sugar's bad, you know, processed food. And and but nobody really knows what a carb is. Nobody knows the difference between an apple and table sugar. You know, it just all gets blended in together. And um, but we just carbs. If you didn't eat, my grandmother had was a diabetic. If you just don't eat sugar, you'll be all right. But she died of a heart attack at 72. So that obviously didn't work because she didn't eat the she didn't eat the pie she made. Um, but it's actually fat. So when the fat blocks the uptake, and, and it's well documented that the fat blocks the uptake of glucose into the muscle cell. So the glucose builds up into the bloodstream. You have to put out more insulin. Insulin is the bad player. We all agree on that, that insulin is the bad player that drives growth factors drives clotting factors, drives inflammation. But when you take the, you take the fat out of the body by doing some sort of exercise and weight loss, and you take the fat out of the diet, then all of a sudden glucose can get back through the keyhole again. And they've even shown it with Tour de France ath type athletes, cyclists. If you put a skinny cyclist on a bicycle and you infuse lipids into them, they'll become glucose intolerant. If you take the glucose, if you take the lipids away, the glucose goes into the cell. And so we just have people start to, again, back to the eating natural things. So not, you know, so, you know, whole fruits and vegetables, you know, whole grains, you know, you're making, um, you know, I'm not afraid of fruit. I eat predominantly fruit for breakfast. People say, you know, I tell my diabetics, you can have 17 pieces of fruit a day. It, it won't raise your glucose as long as you're not eating peanut butter. If you're right, if you take peanut butter with it, all of a sudden it goes up. Um, and, and, and again, if we all, we all, you know, we, we, again, we have these camps, these diet camps, don't eat this, don't eat that. You're on my camp, you're on not. But what we all do agree on is that basically fiber is a good thing. 
Most people agree plants are a good thing, right? Broccoli, nobody, nobody will tell you. Some people don't like broccoli, but nobody will tell you broccoli will kill you. <laughs> you know, and so if we take, you know, where we cut, where we're in common, you know, you like what vegetables do you like, you know, eat those, maybe add one, you know, try another one different, make, make it a different way so that you might like it differently. Try some raw, some, try some cooked, try some different fruits, you know, and, and don't eat things in a box. You know, the people that, you know, if Kellogg's or Post or, you know, God only knows who made it, chances are they're making it to try to get you to eat more of it. Right. But potato people, the potato people, you know, there's a guy, uh, you know, he lived a year on potatoes trying to lose weight and his lab tests were stellar. Potato has everything. It has all of nine essential amino acids. It has all the vitamins and minerals that you need. You know, it's a simple white potato. You stick sour cream and butter on it, you've changed it. You know, you stick, you know, and, and so if we just go back to simplicity and, and, I, and I did hear you say, you know, we have to be able to stick to it somehow. And well, you have to... Yeah, Here's a I don't know if you can read this at all. So this is the first chapter of our book. Can you read that at all where it says? Yes, food, your fork is not your coach. Exactly. And the problem I think with most people get into with running is they look at running as a response to their diets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go get into running. Why? Well, I want to lose weight. I want to get into shape. I, need, I want to be able to eat this. There, you've probably heard a million times. Oh, I only run so I can eat whatever I want. Dude, that is a recipe for disaster. You can't outrun the bad diet. And all you um, have to do is look at the marathon to, see, to show that it doesn't work. Yeah. And so I think that's, that is, to me, the key thing is if you are running as a form of punishment, you know, I don't have my eating in, in order, therefore I'm going to run to try and balance it. And that's why the very first chapter we have in this book, number one, if you want free energy, get your eating in order. Your fork is not your coach. If you're constantly chasing that elusive weight loss because you're going to run more and more and more, you're basically on a hamster wheel. At some point, you're going to fall off. So that's that's where you and I are, are definitely in agreement. We need to make a good, informed uh, analysis of what we're eating and why, and then go from there. Are, are you familiar with um, Dr. Phil Moffatone and, and his? Okay, so I, I can see definitely where you two diverge. However, there's something about Moffatone uh, that I think I'd be curious to hear your response to. Moffatone has this idea of the two-week test. Like, let's remove certain kinds of foods from our diet for two weeks and then gradually reintroduce them and see how we feel. And his idea being that, you know, we don't have to rely so much on artificial markers. Our body's going to give us a response if we feel sluggish, if we feel bad. But the problem is we've got so much stuff sloshing around in our system. We don't know what's making us feel like what. Uh, and so I think that's, for me, is a good starting point. But let's at least get back to the factory preset where we have an informed understanding of how our body's responding and then build from there. I always tell people, you know, and I think that's, that's an excellent way to, to, to do it, you know, because we ask people to try, you know, um, give us a six-week commitment or a two-week try, see how you feel, you know, and if you feel awful, then, you know, don't do it. It's not for you. I mean, there's no specific, you know, there's no one way of, doing this the question is how do you become consistent and how again to me nutrition is just like running you can't put yourself in dietary jail you know um, intermittent fasting works for people that like to intermittent fast but if you take the person that likes to eat and makes and make them intermittent fast they're just going to be watching the clock to when okay i didn't eat all day i have two thousand calories coming away let me add it yeah. You know, so it doesn't work for everybody. It might, you know, the concept 
Yes, but it doesn't work for everybody because that's not how they're wired. You know, we typically have grown up people, you know, people that have traditional jobs, they go to work, they, you know, you have a lunch break, you have a dinner, whatever type of thing. You, you have a family hour, you know, so to, to abruptly change that sometimes it's, it's not that easy. You also have to like what you eat, you know, so you have to look at it. It has to smell good to you. It has to look good to you. It has to be prepared. So it's not, we, you know, we, I have a cookbook that, you know, my daughter and my mother and I put out and it's basically family recipes that you can get on the table in 30 minutes, because if you have to spend eight hours in the kitchen, trying to get your, you know, your perfect meal, that's not going to last either. It's too much pressure. I have a friend that calls it vegetable pressure. You know, you can get these big boxes of vegetables and they come here and it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all these vegetables? Right. You know, so it becomes overwhelming. But if you have a certain, we, we call it go-to meals, you know? So if you have a couple healthy go-to meals, we do soup once a week, maybe we have a burrito night, you know, we have a, you know, things you like, that are your go-to, you don't have to think about it. I don't need to go, you know, an eight page recipe to get this onto the table. And, you know, so that makes it more doable than to, you know, here, this is the best book. This is the best diet book you can have, eat this and you'll live. And it's like, nobody's going to do that. You know, yeah. I think the thing about, so we have, a, we have, we had a concept in here that actually the table is not the real danger. You know, at this point, if you don't know what you're supposed to be eating for dinner, you have just been closing your ears. You know, like Michael Pollan said, uh, eat real food, mostly vegetables, not too much. Nine words, I think the conversation ends right there. Mm -hmm. So everybody kind of knows what they should be eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or if they don't know, they can find out. To me, the real peril is that most of us are not actually sitting down at the table for a traditional family dinner. We're yes. on the move. The kids got soccer practice. I got rehearsal. I was late for work. So we're always in a position of dietary distress. Hey, I'm hungry. Oh, look, there's a Burger King problem solved. And so what we did in this book is create these on the run recipes. The idea is if you can come up with a couple of recipes that, so you're, you're yanking a Tupperware out of the fridge, you know, you got nine of these things with um, food prepared, ready to go. It's delicious. You really enjoy that they're simple. They only take three or four ingredients to prepare and you dig it. You know, um, our, our friend, Alex Barnett, creates a, um, a chia pudding, uh, chia seed pudding. Uh, basically, it's like coconut milk, honey, um, chia seeds, a couple other ingredients, but it's, it's delicious. And it's, you know, eat it whenever, but you know, if you've got the kids are running out the door and you're running off to work, you grab one, he's out of the fridge, you eat it in the car, you're good to go. Uh, healthy, fibrous, nutritious. And, and that's the idea. So what we really want to zero in on are those between meal areas that we think are the real danger zones. Yeah, I think you have to, again, you have to like what you eat. Um, you know, we have people that, you know, they make something, they don't like it. They, you know, how you push it around in a plate, you don't really eat it. And then they go, sure. you know, let's go find something we like, you know, so a bag of Doritos and whatever, you know what I mean? Because they didn't like what they had. But if you like what you have, you're going to eat enough, you'll be full. Um, sure. And and you're conscious of what you're eating. Again, being mindful of, of what you're actually sitting down to eat, as opposed to, like you say, eating out of starvation, out of pressure, I got to be here it's a priority, you know, movement and what, and how we nourish ourselves are what make us survive. And, um, you know, so we, we, again, if we just can dial things back into be a little bit more simple, we'd probably all, um, do a lot better. Well, you know, I told you, I predicted at the beginning of this conversation, we would circle around to the point about change the behavior, you change the outcome. So let's, let's assume this, someone is starting running for the first time. And then rather than pounding out 
this exercise program where they're going to run as hard as they can every day. They take it easy. They focus on form, which is actually very easy to learn. We have this exercise we do. Where we tell people, put the song Rock Lobster on Spotify, take off your shoes and run in place. That gives you 180 beats per minute. And when you run in place, you're going to land lightly on your forefoot. You've, you've now modeled for yourself perfect running form, and it's fun. The starting point is fun. Well, now because it's fun, you want to do more of it. But if you eat a big, heavy meal where you feel sluggish afterwards, you're not going to be able to run. Your afternoon's knocked out. So you're going to modify your diet so that you can actually go out and have a good time. And then now that you've modified the diet, the run feels better. So it reinforces the diet. Like, oh, I want to keep eating that roasted uh, broccoli with uh, sautéed onions on top. Because A, <laughs> good. And then B, I felt light enough to go out and run. And so it becomes this... Uh, self-affirming, uh, self-perpetuating cycle where your run gets better because your uh, eating gets better and your eating gets better because your run gets better. I think it's great. That's probably a good time to stop bugging you. Um, <laughs> but I do really appreciate your time and I look forward to, to reading the book. And, um, you know, I, I want to get back. I think we want to do the Leadville 50. So I want to, you know, get back into the, into the mountains at some point. I don't know that I'll bring a donkey with me any place I go, but, um, but I'll think, I'll pretend that, uh, so my, my dog's name is Sophie. I'll pretend that, uh, Sophie, Sophie can be my donkey some mornings. <laughs> hey, well, I guess I got a thing for you. We have this sweepstakes we're running, um, on Instagram. You can actually win a free entry to the Leadville marathon. If you are oh. that winner of that prize. All right. So, and how do we do that? Oh, it's really easy. Yeah, if you just go on um, our website, Born to Run World, you'll see the entry. But all you got to do is go on Instagram, post your favorite running picture with the hashtag Born to Run 2, and then you're in the contest. And prizes are kind of kind of nuts. Uh, but, you know, free entry in the Leadville Trail Marathon is one of them. Uh, free assortment of uh, zero shoes is another prize. Rough yeah. wear. We have a whole rough wear packet of dog harnesses and leashes. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so just check out Born to Run World, and it's all all there. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes, put the links. It, again, it was uh, an honor and pleasure to get to speak with you. And uh, take care. Thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was really fun. All right. Thank you, Jamie. All right. Take care. Yeah, all right, Jamie. All right. Bye-bye. All right. See ya. Well, I hope you had as much fun with listening to that interview as I did and with our initial conversation. Again, Born to Run, Born to Run 2, Running with Sherman. There's also a book I failed to mention, Natural Born Heroes, also a great read. So check those out. You can go over to his website, Born to Run, and again, I'll Born to Run World, and enter for a sweepstakes, get your pre-order your copy for the December release of Born to Run 2. Again, thank you for listening. If you have any questions for me, you can email me at jamie, J-A-M-I, at drdelaney.com. Visit our website, drdelaney.com, all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com, where you can find out how you can be part of our practice and train with us and even join us for the Treasure Coast Marathon in March. Who knows? Next up for me is a race in Somerville, Texas, um, in a couple of weeks, and then we're off to swim, run, and walk. Uh, I'm sorry, in Austin uh, in, in November and then to CIM in, in December. So maybe I'll see you there. Drop me a line. Thanks again for listening. Take care. <laughs>